Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So Noah, this week on Catch and Shoot, I'm thinking we go totally TV theme for the whole for the whole show. Are you up for this? I mean, our, our guest Bob Salmi that that certainly fits with the TV theme. Yeah, yeah, Bob yeah, Salmi, so a guy that's worked in the he's the coach in the truck. He's he's a guy that breaks down plays that you see on air, ESPN, ABC. Um, he's going to be fun to get to. But I. I have a story that I've been dying to tell on this podcast because I always think that it's you and I just talking alone and I don't assume anyone else is listening. So, Nobody is. Yeah, so since no one else is listening, um, it, it's a story about a, an anchor for a, a major network that I used to work for. Um, not going to name the network or the anchor, but, but people are free to, if they do listen to this, guess on their own. You're, you're free to guess. No, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but, but sure. Um, when when I was working at this this place um, in the newsroom, the anchors would be sitting at a pod with the producer and coordinated producer and and the production assistants would bring them shot sheets from like all the way on the other side of, of the, the place that we worked, which was pretty far hike to take it. So after the production assistants did their highlights, put them together, packaged them up, they'd bring a shot sheet over to the anchor and a uh, five, ten-minute walk would get to the anchor, and they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and they'd be all excited to give the anchor the shot sheet for the, for the highlight for that show. And this one particular anchor is eating a greasy cheeseburger at the pod. Production assistant comes up, standing right above this, this anchor, and, and sort of just looks at the anchor, is all excited, has, has the shot sheet, and the anchor looks at this production assistant, looks at the shot sheet, and looks down at his desk to, to pretty much say, without saying it, hey, drop the shot sheet, right? Put it, put it right down. Well, the, the, uh, the production assistant doesn't do that. He's just sort of so excited to be there that he's just looking back at the anchor. The anchor looks back at the production assistant, again, looks at the shot sheet. <laughs> anchor puts the cheeseburger down for a moment takes his greasy hands, wipes them all over the production assistant's pants, grabs the shot sheet. Thanks. No. Legendary story. Legendary story at this place that I used to work. I had no idea that station in Topeka was (laughs) such a major operation. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't that station in Topeka. I can't believe Mike Gann would do that. I can't believe it. It was not Mike Yam. It It was not Mike Yam. And it wasn't Noah Kozlov either. It was was someone that I worked with in television. And uh, you would know this person, Noah. Yeah, you you know know what? Um, I've got got nothing to to truly follow with that, although it leads leads us to our thought that we want to do the anonymous media podcast where you just like change your voices (laughs) and just start telling stories. But there are, I'll tell you what. There are a lot of good people in the business. There are a lot of frauds and a lot of really bad people Ugh, who just do despicable things. And that's and that's one of them. All right. Let's get into the show. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts, and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area, and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. Catch and Shoot featuring myself, Adam Stanko, and Noah Kozlov is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Our show features great guests such as George Carl, Rick Barry, Steve Javi, and today's guest, Bob Salmon. A new edition of Catch and Shoot drops every Wednesday. Our Friday show is the Pure Hoops podcast. With three-time NBA champion B.J. Armstrong and Eric Newman, B.J.'s takes are unique, and he is not shy about telling you what he thinks. 
Our Monday show is the Mike Wise Show, formerly known as the Wise Ass Show. You can probably figure out why. Nobody tells a story quite like Mike, and some of his guests have been Jamal Crawford, Jeannie Buss, which you have to listen to, PJ Carlissimo, Rick Buecher, and Garrett Temple. Please check all of them out. Subscribe, download, rate, review, and enjoy. Guys, explain this to me. Adam, explain this to me. Saturday night, so Bob Salmi, who we'll have on shortly, the the coach in the truck, he's the telestration producer, so everything that you see get telestrated by the analyst, Jeff Van Gunny and Mark Jackson. That comes from Bob. So Saturday night's game, ABC, Celtics-Lakers. Explain this to me. That could turn into a radio show. No, this is the, the like headliner of all headliners for soap operas that are taking place right now in the NBA. This is the ultimate soap opera. It's Celtics Lakers. It's it's Celtics in complete disarray. All the Celtics fans I know, except our producer Bruce Bernstein, he's pretty level-headed about it, but everyone else is losing their minds over this most recent Celtics fiasco. Apparently LeBron James needs help from Kyle Kuzma to get pushed out to the wing on defense, which I don't even think was really what happened on that play. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> I, I, I just think, in general, like, the one thing for me that's fascinating time and again is I look back on Kyrie Irving's sort of timeline of his career, and it seems like every year, if you go look back, there's something drama-related that he's just attracted to. His most recent thing, being disengaged from the team, doesn't want cameras in his face. Like, there is something about this Kyrie Irving thing that's just become fascinating to me. And I'm really curious as to where the relationship between Kyrie Irving and the Celtics goes. And, by the way, his old teammate, LeBron James, and the Lakers goes. So, must see TV. Must see TV. I I think Mark and uh, Mark Jackson, Jeff Van Gundy, and Mike Breen, I think they should take calls during the actual broadcast. (laughs) Because I think, I mean, you're going to have the, so no Kyle Kuzma, he's probably going to be out now. So, you're going to have... Kyrie with LeBron, and, and now it's, all right, does Kyrie want to play with LeBron again? Is LeBron the only one that can handle the crazy chick? Is that is that how it works? And <laughs> so I think, Kyrie, I think Kyrie's gone, and if, if the Celtics, like the Lakers are finished, so if the Celtics lose this game, then, oh. I mean, right? That's I mean, it just, it's just gonna, it's gonna continue to, it's gonna continue to get worse. Because nothing has been working, and the drama that the Celtics have been able to avoid under Brad Stevens, like they were everybody's darling, and now everybody's rooting against them, and that's not a situation that they're used to. And Noah, how about how cool is it though that like in a way for me, I'm giddy over like soap opera drama in the NBA. Like how cool is it too that like that these the LeBron and Kyrie aren't necessarily like like independent of each other. Like, there's still that weird connection, too. Now the story is, like you just pointed out, that they might play together. You know, Kyrie called LeBron to apologize, but then no, I'm, I'm, he so, basically, I'm so tired of both of them. I'm so tired I, of I both am, of too. Them. I love they're the idea, hit, though. They're both wrecking each other's teams, though. It's great. It's great. They're such hypocrites. They think they're both, they both think they're the smartest guys in the room. And we, and we talked about it a few weeks ago on the show that couldn't you see, you know, if the Lakers are out of it, then it's the LeBron injury. He shuts it down. And, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. And now the headlines are, should LeBron shut it down? Paul Pierce says yes. And it is it is such utter nonsense and embarrassment to for both of them that uh, Kyrie needs to have a beyond impressive final stretch of the regular season and into the playoffs in order to redeem himself. No, right, we're going to have... Wait, no, I, I know we got to move on, but I just have one question for you. Yeah. I saw Brian Windhorst mention that there's still the possibility Kevin Durant could end up in Boston playing with Kyrie. What percentage chance would you give that? Oh, my goodness. Look, if, if Windhorst says it, I'm going to give it at least a 30% chance. Fair. Because he's, he's not, he's, if Windhorst just doesn't say that just because. Everything, everything out of his mouth is is very is calculated. Would and, require and I, a sign and, and trade, but it's still interesting to uh, to think about. So, um, but I think I, I still think he ends up in New York, and I think those two deserve themselves. I think they deserve each other in New York. Anyway, uh, explain explain this to me. 
injuries to major stars, Paul George, Joel Embiid, are going to have a major impact on the start of the playoffs. Well, there's no question. This Joel Embiid thing is just weird to me, Noah. I mean, what what does he miss now? Six straight now, counting counting Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, as we as we record this podcast, um, there is no way around it. I'm I'm curious to see long term what the Sixers would look like if we started seeing a lot of Simmons at the five and just where they would take this team long term. I'm not necessarily talking about this season, oh, but just where where the development could go of Ben Simmons if the, if he was like a new new NBA hybrid five. Yeah, that's interesting, depending on who their point guard would be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But the, I mean, would would he be the first true point center we've seen? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Maybe Draymond counts as some of that. Yeah, or like, right, it goes back to Magic in the finals in in 80. Yeah, it'd be interesting. interesting. But I'm still curious as to where this whole injury thing with Embiid goes, and I I, I think it's still sort of been a head-scratcher, and I think it's way worse than Sixers are are, uh, even letting on. But... But I know that you're way more tuned in to, to what's going on with Embiid right now. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it is a lot worse than and, – and, you know, and it's also the optics-wise. I always look at that, that the last time we saw Embiid, he was you know partying with Michael Rubin at the All-Star game. Then he's out <laughs> there at the All-Star game, and now he's out for six days. There are six games so far as we record this, as you said, on Tuesday night. So and, – and again, the 4-5, you've you got to get out of the 4-5. So – for the Sixers not to have Embiid, yeah, they're they're insanely talented, but not to have Embiid hurts their chances of getting out of that four or five, and that's where you need to be. You cannot. The Sixers do not want to see the Boston Celtics to start the playoffs. Nobody wants to be in that four or five, and I think also the Paul George stuff. I mean, even on on this this team is given the way Westbrook has shot the ball this year, and. <laughs> Also, yep. their their defense without Paul George, they are, I don't want to bore anybody with the numbers, but they are significantly, significantly worse in every single category without Paul George. And and that and that could be trouble for, for Oklahoma City to see how long he's out down the stretch because Oklahoma City, right now, they're, I mean, they're only a game out of the fifth spot. So they could end up falling into the, say, the 4-5 with either Portland or Houston Maybe even Utah, but wouldn't you rather see Utah than Portland or Houston? Nobody, nobody wants. Or maybe to you'd see, rather see Portland. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, right now Houston looks like they they figured it out again. But I, I mean, if Paul George isn't one hundred percent, then I don't trust OKC for anything. But if Paul George is a hundred percent, I mean, I mean, Golden State definitely doesn't want to see them in any way, shape, or form. I can tell you that much. Uh, Paul George has been deadly this year, so it'll be interesting to see where things end up with him down the stretch. All right, explain this to me. Then the coach of the year is very much up for grabs. I think it is. I think it is. I, I'm thinking the front runner right now for me is Nate McMillan. Uh, oh. I, I mean, listen – Look, take a look at the standings. You know, I, I know you've got your uh, your whole idea of, of who should have been there, at, you know, at the beginning of the year, who will be there at the end. And I think when you look at coach of the year, you have to go with expectations. And when you figure that this team has somehow stayed afloat without um, Oladipo in the mix, like, I, I mean, now, granted, it has to be sustained, right? I mean, they, they have to still survive it. But to me, that's... That's my coach of the year right there is uh, is Nate McMillan. But so I, I have do... I have him go, at three. Go for it. I have him Ooh, at three. Okay. Okay. So so Mike Budenholzer I had as one. Not and I mean look I mean they've got they've got the best record in basketball. And, He's been unbelievable. Yeah, and and they didn't change anything really, except for you know they brought in Brook Lopez, but they brought in Brook Lopez to be a three point shooter, and they they had Mike Budenholzer. So and and, and Giannis has become the MVP. So I think I think Mike Budenholzer is the favorite, followed by Michael Malone in Denver because of the yes. production that they've got, not just from Jokic, but also the bench. And they've been there with the Warriors the entire season. So if they stay in that second spot or even win the West. And then I have Nate McMillan at three. But I was looking at it, 
the last eight coach of the years, they've all had a winning percentage above 670. So right now, the only teams with winning percentages above 670 are Golden State, Milwaukee, and Toronto. And you got to go all the way back to, like, Doc was the last coach of the year all the way back. I think it was like 2000. Yeah, it was 2000. was the last coach of the year that was around, was at 500. He was 41 and 41. And that was the year coming off of the lockout year with Chuck Daly. They traded Penny. They weren't expected to make the playoffs. Or they didn't make the playoffs, but they were expected to be the worst team in the league. Um, so I, I think it's, and, and look, I think Terry Stotts deserves yes. serious, serious consideration, but but there's only three spots. So right now I would go Budenholzer, Michael Malone, and Nate McMill. Let me let me just ask you this. Where would Indiana have to finish in the East without Oladipo now rest of the way for you to change your rankings? Yeah, I mean they'd have they'd have to somehow leapfrog Toronto. Like I think if they if they stay in the th- I'm, and I'm not saying that it's not like staying in the staying in the third spot, Adam, is crazy impressive. Yes. But, but Milwaukee is a top five offensive team, top five defensive team, and really, and all they did was change their coach. I, 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 that argument is is pretty tough to uh, to go up against. Yeah, but it's but I think it's I, I love the coach of the year race every year because some do it based on what expectations were before the season. And the reason I even thought about this today, real quick, was because Jason McIntyre, big league Fox Sports, he he had tweeted something about Doc being in the top three, and I wrote back to him. I said, uh, I think you're nuts. I don't think you've looked at the entire list if you have Doc in the top three. No, I mean, I would have, and, and what Doc has done has been great. But Sure. But I'd have, I'd have Scott Brooks. Uh, I mean, not Scott Brooks, Billy Donovan. <laughs> Billy Donovan ahead of him in OKC. I'd have Terry Stotts ahead of him in uh, in Portland. And I'd have Nick Nurse in Toronto ahead yeah. of him also. So, yeah. I mean, look, he's done a good job. But no, no, Scott Brooks is not going to be up there for Coach of the Year. Uh, ex- ex- explain this to me. Speaking of races, the Rookie of the Year race isn't over. I, listen, Noah, before... Before the draft, and I do a lot of work pre-draft trying to scout out these guys and figure out who's going to be good, the most polarizing guy was was Trey Young. People thought that he was going to flop. People thought, I don't know where he's going to be. And you just had to be patient, and he had to somewhat figure it out. And, and also, Atlanta had to give him basically the reins and say, all right, you do what you do. You be the player that you're going to be. In, in, a, in a way, very Steph Curry-like. Not in that they're the same player. I don't need that comparison for Trey Young anymore. But more so just the idea that he's a guy that has to play fast and loose and you have to let him jack from 25 and you have to let him just sort of play this wild game where he passes and he dominates the ball. But when you look at the numbers, over his last nine games, 27 points a game, 10 assists a game, unbelievable numbers now granted nearly five turnovers a game and that's what i talk about when with some of the erratic play but here's the one for me noah the other night he became just the third player in the last decade with three straight games with at least 35 points and eight assists Dwayne wade and james harden are the other two i mean that's such elite company 35 and 8 for a rookie i know we talk about the luka numbers all the time and and luka has changed the culture in dallas but what Trey Young's doing in Atlanta, you have to put him in the discussion at the very least for rookie of the year. Yeah, I mean it's it's Lucas, I think, but it but Trey is is a strong two, and he might and Luca might not win it unanimously since the mm-hmm. All Star break. He Trey leads the league in, um, or Atlanta leads the league in points, and actually, and, and so does Trey. With uh, they average they're averaging 126 points a night since the All Star break. Trey leads the league in points since then. He's second in assists since then. Second in threes since then. Uh, the Hawks are making 17 threes a night since then. Uh, a few others. In February, he was 23.3 and 9.3 to go along with 4.3 rebounds. First time in a month that any rookie has gone 23.3, 9.3 since Oscar Robertson did it. Which, you know, that's as elite company as it gets. The only rookies good. ever to average 18 and 7 are... And which Trey is doing now at eighteen point two and seven point eight are AI Damon Stoudemire, Magic Johnson, Oscar Robertson. <laughs> Good company. Good company. Yeah. But look, but it, again, it's not it's not a slight because Luca's been on another planet and 
Trey just happens to be on another planet of its own. It's just that Luca is on Jupiter at the moment. Yeah, it's gonna that be is that is the largest planet, right? I, you're asking the wrong guy. You're asking I, I the think, wrong guy. Yeah, I think so. That was fascinating. We're joined now by a man with so many titles going back in his career, but right now you can call him the coach in the truck. He's the telestration producer for ESPN ABC games. He is a former Sixers TV analyst. He's won multiple Emmy awards. He went to the NBA finals as an assistant coach for the Knicks in the nineties. Spent two years as an assistant coach for the Dallas Mavericks. He worked for the Philadelphia 76ers on their bench with Matt Gukas. He's Bob Salmi. Bob, we appreciate the time. Okay. And and I'm only 97 years old. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I could start with Florida Southern and the 82 Division II Championship, but we'll we'll get to that at some point because I'm sure the details are, are fresh in your mind. But what is what is day-to-day like for you? Day-to-day right now is, is basically, um, you know, following the NBA, staying on top of, of what's going on in the NBA. And then when uh, the ABC games roll around, uh, usually two on a weekend, and then when the playoffs roll around, especially every game in the playoffs that the ABC and ESPN will do, is um, just preparing for what what uh, Mark and Jeff will talk about, what they have talked about, and what some of the trends are in the league that we could possibly X and O on that would enhance maybe our coverage and, and let viewers inside a little bit better into what's really going on on the floor. So, so where are you during the game? Uh, during the games now, the technology has changed. Uh, I used to travel to the games, and my equipment was in the TV truck, and I was actually there on site with everyone. But now it's evolved to the point where I could do multiple games from one location in Bristol, Connecticut. And I could stay in Bristol and do, I mean, I could do a college game at 2 in the afternoon and do a uh, pro game at 8.30 at night. Uh, I can control the unit that I used to work, physically work on site. I can control that unit from Bristol, Connecticut. Bob, what is it that that you see now watching monitors and and, uh, trying to figure out how you're going to telestrate these plays that maybe you didn't see when you were coaching? Um, You know, it's interesting that there's so many different angles that a television broadcast will use that, you know, a viewer is not really aware of. I mean, they see the super slow-mo replays, and for the most part, a viewer watches the game with one camera where you see all 10 guys at the same time. When plays happen, like I'll use James Harden as an example. When when James Harden does his step back, he stretches the rules to the limit. And in real time, I don't want to officiate him because it's so hard to tell. Does he take an extra step? Does he pick the ball up before he jumps back? All those things come into play, and I get an opportunity by going to other cameras, going to other replay angles to see exactly what happened after the fact. And then maybe I could show that to the viewer or show that to Jeff and Mark and, and they can talk about it. So it's an interesting way to, to enhance a broadcast and bring some other things to the floor that you wouldn't see watching on 10 guys. I, I want to go back in time. Um, you, you know, Noah had laid out the resume there and being an assistant coach with the Knicks and, and with the Mavs. And I have so many questions about, about the coaches that, that you worked for. Um, but I saw something interesting where you talked about um, Pat Riley being the most organized person or coach that you've ever been around and Don Nelson being the least organized. Can you can you give me an example of how both uh, sort of fit that bill? Well, it, it's interesting to me that, that I think Nelson was more the mad scientist type of coach where he would you know sit down after a game and, and go out to dinner with his staff and and he was first team all paper napkin. He would draw it up and, and he would stuff it in his shirt and bring it to practice the next day. Whereas Pat <laughs> Riley would be very meticulous about how he put things down, how he stored things, how he organized things. And they're both great basketball minds, but two totally different approaches as to how they go about their day to day. And I felt fortunate to have worked for guys like that on two different ends of the spectrum because you know, so many young coaches get to work for one coach before they ever, you know, become a head coach or they only ever see one way of doing things. You wouldn't call Don Nelson a bad coach and you wouldn't call Pat Riley a bad coach, but those are two polar opposite approaches to how they go about their day-to-day in basketball. So on that point, give me an example, Bob, if you would, about how those two, Don Nelson and Pat Riley, went about connecting with players differently. 
I just think that Pat Riley always made it about, and it's one of the things I respected about him. It was never, it was never personal. It was never, you know, like you're a bad player or you're not doing what. It was always team oriented. That we need you to do X so that we can win. Uh, we need you to fill this role for us to win. And Nelson was a little different. He just threw different parts together and never really talked about, you know, the, the how or the why. Just you saw the how or the why after the ball went in the basket. So, you know, Pat, his approach was player-wise just, hey, this is what we need to do. This is a proven way that teams can win. And for you to be a part of that winning, you have to fill this role. And Nelson was, you know, well, you're, you're going to be the point guard, Anthony Mason. And Mason never played point guard, you know, it's just, and he just uh, handled the ball. And then all of a sudden Patrick Ewing was open for an eight footer on the baseline and no one questioned anything or how it started or how it finished. And Nelson just kind of smiled a little bit as the ball went in the basket because he knew he had set that up, but never any real discussion about the how or the why. Riley was more about the how or the why and how it related to the team and how your role helped that team win. As far as guys buying in as being a being a video guy early in your career, who are the stars or at least the, the better players on the teams that were all in on video and the other guys who rejected it? It's interesting. They were all all the guys that I've ever worked with have been all in. And as it got to the point where, gosh, I remember when I first went down to Dallas uh, with Jim Clemens as the head coach, and I was excited because Jimmy Jackson, Jamal Mashburn, and Jason Kidd were on that team. And you couldn't get those guys enough video. And we were just starting to put them on, uh, onto CDs at the time in an MPEG-1 format where you could finally compress it enough to view it so you could understand or see who was who. You could put a whole game on one CD. And they would watch it on the laptop. I don't think I've ever been around a player, especially a good player, that didn't want to see as much film or as much video as they could get their hands on. All right, so give us the real story. Why didn't it work out with those three? I That's a great question. Never had any real bigs. Um, Jason Kidd would admit, I think, that you know, as a young player, he was making mistakes off the floor and not really as dedicated to his training regimen as he was later in his career. I mean, uh, Jimmy Jackson was young. Uh, Mashburn was suffering a couple little injuries and a couple things and things like that, but... I was excited about seeing those three on a team and excited about going there, thinking we could have turned that thing around. Is the Tony Braxton thing real? Um, to some extent. I never really asked Jason <laughs> or, or them about it, but you know, it, it came up on occasion. It, it's funny how you watch these shows now and you see her, she's got some reality show or something yeah. that she's doing, and I kind of <laughs> chuckle and say, well, that's different reality back in 96 than your reality right now. Baba, uh, I saw an article about about that you were quoted in, in in 1996 about the advanced scout service that was sort of like a precursor to today's analytics and, and video stuff. Um, what, what was it like working on on, you know, that technology back then? It was interesting because it, it was the first, um, I guess, foray into analytics. Um, Pat Riley hired a guy, uh, Jordan Cohn, back in the early 90s who did you know, every breakdown of every play of every game and had his own little crew where, you know, two dribbles left, two dribbles right, all the things you see now as, you know, just day-to-day stuff that people consider this, that, you know, he goes left, he shoots 40%. He goes right, he shoots 60%. So, you know, guess what? Well, force him left. Um, He was doing that in the early 90s. But the hard part for me was he had a line that he he attributed to to, uh, Bob Knight and thank God I got to work with Knight for three years on college basketball. I did X and O for him. They were thinking he could be, you know, a decent broadcaster if he, you know, applied himself. But he had a lot of stuff in his mind that never really got out to the viewer. But I felt fortunate to work for him because he said he never said this. And Riley said he did. He said that the box score accuses, but videotape indicts. And what he meant by that was that, you know, you could look at all the stats and all the analytics and all the things you want to. Somebody has to decide based on the video evidence whether or not those stats or those analytics make sense. And the guy that had to go find that video in a linear format 
which is VHS tape, rewind, pause, rewind, pause, find these thousands of items. That was me. So I learned a lot about analytics and I learned a lot about boredom because I had to go find those. And there were times where, you know, some of the stats that you thought really made a lot of sense. Finally looked at the video and said, well, you know, we're down 20 in five of these instances. So it didn't matter. You know, um, there were pick and rolls where we double teamed on six of them and they didn't score. You know, there was always something within that data based on what you saw in the video that either helped it make sense or discredited it to the point where it didn't make any sense at all. And Riley understood that way before anybody else did. I want to ask more about Pat Riley, but I'm, I'm curious as far as Bob Knight goes, what did you learn from him that you didn't know about basketball before working on? I, I on, learned on that he is, he's a savant. He, <laughs> I still have sore ribs from this, and, and he cared about the game. And I still have sore ribs from this one. He, we're sitting at the University of Georgia, and I won't name the coaches. It's not the current coaching staff. But, you know, teams break up in a shoot-around. They go bigs at one end and small at the other. And the bigs are at the one end, and they're throwing the ball into the post, and the player would catch it, and without a dribble, back to the basket, would drop their right foot, drop their left foot, and then go up and shoot the ball. Now, this happened like six times in a row, and I get punched in the chest. Hard. And he says, Coach Knight says to me, do you see this blank? I said, you know, well, Coach, let me fix my ribs here. But, yes, I do see this blank. He, I had to physically restrain him from walking down on the floor and interrupting practice because every time these kids in college, in a post-up drill, day of the game, they traveled every time they caught the ball. And the coaches were okay with that. And he was infuriated by this. To the point where he punched me, and I had to hold him back and stop him from going down on the floor and interrupting the practice. And, you know, we had a discussion about it. I said, well, that's why they're not any good. And that's why the team's not very good. They're not coached well enough to appreciate those little things. And that's the big message from him that I got, that every little thing you did on the court mattered, whether it was a drop step, a bounce pass, you know, a pass to a shooter, you know, a pivot, everything you did mattered. And if you coach that way, you could have a pretty good team. Did he tell the coaching staff what he thought? I never talked to him about it. I, I just, he, he sees, like, I'm the kind of guy that have to watch things a couple times before they really sink in. Like, I, I think I saw, well, let me go back and look at the tape and rewind it and, and look at it and double check. There are guys like, I think there's about a half a dozen of them that I've been around. Doug Collins could do it. Bob Knight could do it. Pat Riley could do it. Larry Brown could do it. They literally could replay an entire game in their head and be dead on accurate about every play within that 48-minute game. And that that is scary, savant-type <laughs> mind, mind yeah. control that I, just, I don't possess that skill at all. And those guys do, and they see it, and they remember it, and that's why they were good before videotape and probably even better after videotape. So let's go, let's go back to the time with Riley with the Knicks. So year one, lose to the Bulls in the first round, then lose to the Bulls in the second round, then lose to the Bulls in the Eastern Conference Finals, and then Jordan retires and gets to the finals, famous finals against the Rockets. Where, where were you? when you heard that Jordan was stepping away? Um, good question. Where was I? Um, with the Knicks, but where? I was still uh, assistant coach and video coordinator with the club when that happened. And it was interesting because it's, if it wasn't for the one that I, I guess Phil Jackson called it the phantom foul on Hubert Davis, we might not have gotten by the Bulls in that playoff round <laughs> to get to get to the finals <laughs> that year. Because it's uh, Hubert gets two free throws on um, I would say, I'd say it was a bad call because no one was within a foot and a half of him, and he ended up getting two free throws and it sealed the game, and we ended up winning the series. But um, it was interesting because I was I got the good fortune to go to be a scout with Doug Collins' staff when Michael was with the Washington Wizards and got a chance to talk to him and meet him and and talk about some things. And he just he's another guy that just saw things way before they ever happened to to a scary scary extent. But do you, do you remember when, like the the feeling that you had that all right you couldn't get by Jordan and then he steps 
then he steps away from the game and 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 how and even how you got how you got that news what you as a coaching staff talked about what the vibe was around the league no it's funny it was never really discussed about you know and to Riley's credit it wasn't like now this is our turn it was it was never about what anybody else did it's about what you were doing and sure that was a huge part of it you know Jordan not being there Um, but Riley was always you know you, you forget the year that they I guess the year before, what was it? Uh, Knicks were up 2-0. And heading back to Chicago and lost four straight games to lose that series 4-2. So it's it was competitive, but somehow Michael always figured a way to get out on top. But I, I don't ever remember that being discussed or that yeah. being like a, a sense of relief that, all right, now it's our turn. Michael's gone. Let's make this happen. I, I, don't, I don't remember anybody ever saying that. Bob, the stories about Pat Riley and the way he used to work out his guys are legendary. Um, I know the players that that have played for him, even even when he was, you know, running things in Miami, have said that like the workouts were just beyond anything like that was going on in the NBA. You have some examples of, of times when uh, Riley's workouts were were unrivaled in the league. Well, I don't know. It's funny that his conditioning was a big big part of, of what Pat wanted to do, but. He also had a way of, of making other people think that it was longer than it was. And one of his favorite ways of doing that was actually doing the video sessions on the court where, you know, close practice, you get in there at 930 in the morning. And the first thing you do is you watch an hour you know, of film. So you're an hour into practice and you haven't done a thing. Um, stretching was a big, big part of what Pat did. And he thought it was very important in terms of keeping guys healthy. So you did another half hour of that. You're an hour and a half into, quote, practice, if you're a reporter standing outside, and you haven't broken a sweat. <laughs> so let's say you go for an hour. Oh, Riley killed him today. He went for two and a half hours. And God forbid you go for an hour and a half. That's a three-hour practice. And that's how it gets printed in the paper. And it wasn't three. It was, you know, an hour and a half hard. And, yeah, they were hard, but it wasn't – it wasn't as crazy as people made it out to be in the press. Huh. <laughs> and, and but but Riley knew exactly how it was perceived. Oh, sure he did. Sure he did. But conditioning wise, and this is one of my favorite Riley stories. Um, Stacy King's last year in the pros was uh, in Miami, and he was part of a, a package, I guess, that was put together where he was a throw-in uh, when I believe when uh, Alonzo signed. And he was, let's put it politely, he was overweight. And when he got there, he had to get down there by himself without his family uh, and his kids and his wife and spent 30 days in Pat Riley's training regimen, you know, getting ready for the season and getting himself into shape. Now, his wife and family finally show up at the apartment where he's staying. And he's just coming out of the shower when his wife walks in. And she looks at her husband, who she hasn't seen in 30 days, and he looks him up and down with a towel wrapped around him, and he's lost 40 pounds easy. And her first comment is, ooh, I like Pat Riley. Run of the pill, run down old NBA star. I'm married to a guy who's in shape. I like Pat Riley. <laughs> Those are true. Those are all true. Conditioning was a huge, huge part of his team's success, and he expected everybody on that team to be in better shape than anybody else in the league. Do you see those? I mean, it's still famous in in Miami with how he runs the culture there. Is there another organization around the league that has adopted that or at least made up, you know, 80% of that? I I think – matches it i think san antonio has been able to do that with you know their culture and how they coach and how they teach and how they you know manage expectations for players and things like that i think has absolutely been that but it's funny you say that i i go from you know four years with pat riley in new york to go down to dallas and that was my first eye-opening experience of the rest of the league is not you know into organizationally being the best or yeah. you know, being accountable for what you do. And it was night and day. And, you know, you go from New York where everything is buttoned up. Everything is, you know, heading in the same direction to a, 
a team where it wasn't, and it, it affected the team. There's no question. And I, I learned that firsthand going, you know, 20 and 62. That was um, a little different than 60 and 22 when yeah. I was with the Knicks. That's that's a hard pill to swallow and an eye-opening experience, no question. When uh, when Van Gundy when Van Gundy got the job, were you up for the job also, or was it understood that Van Gundy was going to get it? No, no, okay. Jeff was. Jeff was as surprised as anybody. Uh, I remember being at the, um, it was in the Ritz Carlton in Philadelphia. And, you know, walking downstairs and Jeff told the coaches that he was going to take over and he brought all the team together into, had like a walkthrough in the hotel, in one of the big rooms there. And he talked to the players about what was going on and what was to be expected. And it was, it was kind of a surprise for everybody. He, he stepped up and did one tremendous job with, you know, those guys and, and, maintain the discipline that, that had been there before. He, uh, he turned out to be a pretty good coach. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. For sure. When, you know, you, you, you talk about how that's, that culture was different between the Knicks and the, and the Mavericks. Now that you see teams all over the league and obviously uh, your experience over, you know, the last few decades, I mean, how, how different are organizations now across the league from one to another? Well, you, you see when, when teams start to have success, it's, you know, organizationally, it starts at the top. You look at what, you know, and I know Boston's struggling right now, but Ainge has done a pretty good job of, you know, creating a culture there of, you know, hey, this is how we're going to do things. This is how we're going to play. These are the kind of guys we want to get. And, you know, granted, they're struggling now, but they, who knows what's happening. Get that turned around. But, you know, that started with Danny Ainge and, and organizationally at the top. Um you know, Pat Riley's teams in Miami. I mean, not doing tremendously well now, but and the same with Popovich in San Antonio, but that hasn't changed the culture of how they approach things and how they approach, you know, looking for players and, and searching free agents and, and the conditioning and, and the day-to-day things that they do that, you know, there's there's a professionalism there with a lot of teams that a lot of teams don't have. And it's a shame, but it's, it's, it's apparent to it. It becomes apparent in the wins and losses, I believe. You talk about professionalism, and um, I'm awfully curious about your, your time. You were right in the midst of the Allen Iverson heyday era in, in Philadelphia, uh, working as a, a broadcaster at the time, I remember, for Comcast. Uh, what's your best Allen Iverson story? Oh, the, the best is it was a Doug Collins interview uh, during the finals. And that year, everything had changed in the, in the media, everything had changed for Allen Iverson. He was, you know, a practice player. Now he was coming early. He was staying late. He was lifting. He was conditioning. He was doing all those things. So Doug Collins sits down to interview him for NBC during the finals. And Allen Iverson goes seven straight cliches and they finish up the interview. And Doug Collins knew he was being had and he stopped grabbed Allen's arm as he was getting out of the chair. He says, hold on a second. And he says, shut the, that camera off, shut it off. Shut that camera off, shut that ca- unplug it. I don't want it on. I don't want it running. I don't want it to shut it off. And now Allen's eyes get really big. And he says, okay, Allen, you know what? You tell me, because what you just told us, okay, was what people want to hear. What's really going on with you? And Iverson is an honest guy. He said, don't look like you know Doug, all right, here, here it comes. <laughs> I'm saying that. He says, nothing's changed. I haven't done anything different. I don't practice any harder. I don't practice any more. I haven't lifted a weight all year. I haven't done anything different than I've done since I got in the league day one. And he says, you know what the difference is, Doug? We're winning. Doug Incredible. shook his hand said, no, he said, he said, Doug shook his hand said, thank you, okay? And that was the end of the interview. It just, it, Guys like Allen Iverson get it. I, I remember sitting next to Billy King. I think it was the year, uh, the year before I started doing color in Philly, and I was at training camp. And it was the year that Allen missed the back end of the season and then didn't train all summer. When I say didn't train all summer long, like no weights, no conditioning, no nothing. I mean played pickup games with his buddies. Okay, the first day of an NBA two days, two a day in the mid nineties was was hard. 
So all Allen Iverson did in the first practice for two and a half hours was pass people. He hadn't like done any conditioning all summer long, <laughs> and he passed people for two like, up and down the court, running past. It was all God-given ability, God-given conditioning that just his body's wired different than everybody else. There's guys puking in trash cans, you know, because they can't handle the effort level. Okay, and all Allen Iverson did was pass people. And I remember telling Billy King, "That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen." There's so much God-given ability there that you can go an entire summer of, you know, I don't know what to find, play pickup games, you know, not working on your conditioning, and then show for NBA practice and just bury people. He was, he was wired different than everybody else. He really was. Rex, Rex Walters told me a story once that when they had preseason started at Carolina one year and they got on the track to run a few miles and Allen immediately lapped the field going backwards. He ran backwards while everyone was running forwards. All right, now contrast that with what I remember Charles Barkley's first two-mile at Franklin and Marshall College. He and Kenny Green finished the two-mile, okay? Um, uh, I'll do it, okay? It, <laughs> in the two-mile, 18 minutes and four <laughs> seconds and 18 minutes and five seconds. <laughs> two, professional, two professional athletes running the two-mile. <laughs> he had to be physically restrained, like – there's a different little conditioning level, and you know, <laughs> than with, with Charles than there was with Iverson. I just, he is. I mean, he's he's an amazing guy. <laughs> but then, can if you could tell, tell tell a a, a Barkley story that of something that that he might have done because I've I've heard so many of them that he might have done that there's just no way he could have gotten away with in today's age. Um, he went after a few fans in, in some arenas that, uh, if he had done that, he would, he would have gotten dinged and suspended. Like there was a woman in Boston that was just riding him like a horse one day and Jimmy Lynam was doing his X and O and, and literally she's right behind him and, you know, just berating him as, as, as bad as you can talk about somebody, this lady. And she was in her seventies for crying out loud, just giving it to Charlie. And I remember looking at Jimmy Lynam and he said, Jimmy, hang on a second. Stands up, gets about six inches from her face, points at her, and tells her, you know, shut the bleep up, you bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> okay, now the woman sits down, you know, she's like, wow, that's scary. He really scared her. He did. Well, Lineham can't get control of the huddle because everybody, I mean, <laughs> the rest of the players are laying on the floor laughing. And it just, if you did that now, you'd miss a few games and be writing a rather large check. But Charlie just... He'd had enough that day, and he told that seven-year-old woman that he he'd had enough in no uncertain terms. Yeah, I mean, you could, yeah, we could tell Barkley stories, Iverson stories for days, but uh, we got to bring it back to to modern day. When was when when? How do you? I should say, how do you handle the what you need? Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy to tell you that they need to see versus what you anticipate they're need, they're needing to see. You know, it's, it's it's funny you say that. Like, my job is basically to listen and listen and react. Like, there are times, you know, it, we've done some games where, you know, this is how, you know, right out of the shoot, they're playing James Harden a certain way. And that's, you, you draw it up real quick and coming out of the next time out, you can talk about it. Or, you know, you talk about, you know, a Philly game we're playing the other day and how many options you have offensively. And, and you hear words like that from Mark and Jeff. And then, then I go to work and start throwing some things together and, and say, hey, you know, well, this is – it's just what you guys are talking about. And then and, and producer Tim Corrigan will, will look at it, talk those guys through it. But you're right. Knowing those guys like I do. I mean, Mark Jackson was in New York when I first got there in 89, 90. Uh, so was Jeff. And, you know, you see those guys every day. You practice with those guys. You know, you get to know them as people. You, you get to know them as players and coaches. And, and it, it's, it's really not that hard for me to figure out, you know, one, what they're thinking. But if I listen and, and follow their lead, I, I really can't go wrong. So, and so many people, there's there's a couple different people in my role that, you know, ask me about when I do college games with Jay Billis, if if I don't listen to Jay Billis, I'm not going to do a very good job. I mean, there, there's some great analysts that take you in a direction that if you follow their lead, it's going to be a pretty good telecast because you're supporting what they're talking about mm-hmm. and then giving them a chance to enhance even further for a viewer you know, to talk about in even simpler terms about what's really going on in these complex situations. 
Noah himself is a is a pretty terrific uh, play-by-play guy for for TV. So he he could probably answer this question. But as a fan, speaking strictly as a, as a fan that watches from the outside, uh, I'm curious, Bob. During timeouts, during breaks in action, during half times, what types of conversations um, are you guys having when they when they relay things back to you about what they've seen so far? Actually, there's not not as much as you would think anymore. It's just uh, there was early on. It just um, like I said, it's supporting what they're talking about. Like when I get a replay package together, hey, you know, Mark or hey Jeff, is this what you're talking about? You know, hey Jay Billis, is this you know just support what you're talking about? And, and then they go from there. So it just, I think some of those conversations happen, you know, especially when you get to the playoffs, they happen pregame. I mean, like, are there, you know, you get from Jeff or you get from Mark or you get from uh, producer Tim Corrigan that, you know, hey, Sammy, this is what, you know, we, like, I'm not in some of the coaches' meetings, especially if I'm in Bristol. Uh, we just got out of a meeting with, you know, with Brad Stevens and he said, blah, 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 blah. So there's all kinds of, you know, red flags that go up and, and, warnings and heads up that I get from you know, the producer and from Mark and Jeff that, that really helped me do my job. So it's you not know, just, again, it's listening to, you know, what other people are talking about and then trying to try to support that. All right. He said, it's, I mean, every time I, I mean to wrap this up with like a last one or two, I think it's something else. So we appreciate the time. It, when, when you're, when you're watching games, whether it's in the truck or, or back in Bristol or, or working on the game or, or you're watching on TV, who's the coach now that, impresses you the most with the stuff he runs ah boy that's a good one that's a good one i'm still a big brad stevens fan i mean as much as they're struggling i i think that one of the best measures of a coach is some of the things they run coming out of timeout uh brett brown in philly has gotten better way better at that like you know looking at a matchup coming out of timeouts exploiting that matchup that that to me is the measure of a really good coach when you've you know you're playing a game and it's it's in the middle of the second quarter and it's the second timeout of the quarter and you come out of that timeout with something that gets you a bucket or gets you a clean look that that, that impresses me a lot mm-hmm. and I, I see that i see that more and more especially from a lot of these younger coaches that you know that's that's where their focus is and they're really trying to exploit some matchups based on how the game's going All right um what do you, what do you uh what still keeps you up at night from losing the 1982 D2 championship Oh, good. Well, one, I wasn't there. I got recruited after that year. So that's oh, the first oh, year I got there, I was a redshirt on the. Uh, oh, that's yeah, that what was, keeps uh, you up at night. Gambling and uh, Felix Tertullian and Mike Hayes and that crew. They, uh, oh. they got to meet some of those guys. But, um, oh, I read that. You know, I, they, I got recruited by that coach after they won. And, you know, how whistle, God, God love them. Um, Maybe his eye for talent wasn't that good because after winning in 81, they didn't win it, you know, after I got there. So it's just maybe he needed to recruit a little better. <laughs> uh, um, so, Bob, usually we, we end the catch-and-shoot interview with asking you who is the player that you would choose in a Game 7 situation to take the last shot all time. But you're in such a unique spot that we're going to phrase it to you a little bit differently. Game okay. seven, important game to call, most important game to call. You have to listen to this broadcast. Who do you want on the call, Mike Breen or Mark Zumoff? Oh, that's Mike Breen. That's easy. That's easy. I mean, Zoo's got Zoo's got tremendous passion. He really does. He just, you know, he loves the game. He's been there for a long time. And, and one of the hardest things to do is maintain passion over time. Zumoff has that in spades, no question. But um, Breen, like Pat Riley, is as prepared and knowledgeable as anybody in the league. I, I put him up against – I'd be willing to make a bet about Breen that in a rules quiz with the officials, like if he jumped in the officials meeting and they gave all the NBA officials a rules quiz, Breen would be top 30, easy. Oh, wow. And the referees are supposed to know the rules, dead. And I'm betting that Breen knows the rules better than half of them. Who who would be your analysts? I take Mark and Jeff. I take Mark and Jeff. Two unique approaches, and again, Jeff sees things, you know, before they happen. Mark catches matchups quickly, and and uh, no, I'll take those two. I'll take those two any day. Well, Bob, we appreciate it. Thanks so much, and uh, and we and we we hope that uh, our listeners got a little bit insight into what goes on behind the scenes in that broadcast, and then uh, what Iverson and and Barkley and others were like as well. We appreciate it. 
All right, not a problem, guys. Thank you. I think we're about to go off the rails. All right, let's go off the rails. Um, I, I thought about, like, I don't know, the whole time now, I've been thinking about thinking about TV stories. Um, <laughs> I worked, uh, so I guess I'll go with this instead of talking about the uh, salmon burger I cooked in the kitchen tonight, and I think I'm surprised that you don't smell it all the way out west because, <laughs> oh, my God, my entire apartment stinks. <laughs> I'm sure the hallway does too. But anyway, it was good. It was good. Um, <laughs> a place where I used to work. We'd be hosting a show from from a studio, and yeah, of course it's it's soundproof. But you're looking out at the glass, and you're looking at the production team. Mm-hmm. And while you're doing the show, and the cameras were all robotic, and while you're doing the show, there are people throwing a football back and forth, uh, playing guitar, which you could hear a little bit, singing songs, like 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 having a cookout. Basically, yeah, while, professional, yeah, professional yeah, environment. Yeah, while while you're doing a show, and uh, but that side of things was never talked about. But if God forbid you slipped up on the air, it was uh, DefCon One. <laughs> did did the guys outside the window try to distract you? No, like, I mean, I, I just I just don't think they cared. <laughs> and they're good, and they're good people too. I just don't I just don't think they care. Same same place where. Towards uh, the end of my time there, uh, we had we had a bunch of downtime, and we would we would take shaving cream and put it on the wall, and then like a stri- like it was a strike zone, and mm-hmm. then fire a, a Nerf ball against it and get the shaving cream to explode. And I was working with former uh, major leaguers, and they would do it, and <laughs> it was like. <laughs> it was like bombs were going off. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's, yeah, it's, good times. I, good times. I, uh, I I remember when I, when I was working um, at ESPN, and I'm not going to say who the the baseball analyst was, but I remember there was a, a, a younger entry level guy one time walks into the bathroom, and a, a six five former professional pitcher is is at the uh, is at the urinal next to him and the way that that the urinals at espn were they were like stacked so you know you had your you know you your different sizes we should say right so you have okay. your higher level urinals yeah, and yeah, then yeah. the lower i'm just explaining for the you know female audience you know who, who might not know the oh, sure. uh, intricacies of a, of a male bathroom but, oh yeah they're, they're thrilled that they do now <laughs> so this uh, entry-level guy walks in and he ends up stepping up to where one of the higher urinals was. <laughs> it wasn't a very tall guy. And right next to him is the 6'5 pitcher from the MLB, uh, former MLB pitcher. And the, and the pitcher, while they're both sitting there using the ur- or standing there, I should say, using the urinals, the pitcher taps the, the entry-level oh, no. guy on the backside and, sl- and says, Oh, you're swinging where the big sticks swing, <laughs> and then walks away. <laughs> TV Man. is something else. I don't know what it is about it, about the business, uh, Noah, but uh, we got ourselves into something pretty pretty weird. Oh, it is. Uh, it's some mess. It's some mess. <laughs> some mess. Oh. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Now you're gonna wrap this up by thanking people that that really do deserve to be thanked. I'm tired of you cutting off, you know, every week when I try to thank Bruce and everybody else. Uh, everybody, the you don't even know their names. Jeff you said everybody. Bruce, Scott, everybody with a Pure Hoops Media email address. Eric, I think I think Eric. Ron. I think I'm the I think I'm the only one who doesn't have one. I don't um, think you want a Pure Hoops. No, no, and, and I'm just tired of you cutting. I'm just tired of you cutting me off every week when you try to thank everybody. Well, I do want to. I do want to thank the guys uh, as as per our contract, Noah. So I'll do it if if you're not going to do it. Um, you know, Bruce Bernstein, Eric. Oh, I guess very, you did very genuinely too. Very genuinely. <laughs> you 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 did. You brought it. Hey, you did two great things tonight. You thanked people and uh, you made a hell of a salmon burger. Apparently. Yeah, I did. I did. We're gonna smell that for days. And we thank uh, thank Bob Salmi also. He was awesome. Um, we do have to give credit. There. Yeah, yeah. Swing, swing with the big boys. <laughs> swing where the big sticks. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Swing with the big sticks. <laughs> All right. So I hope everybody uh, subscribes. If you want more stories like this, just let us know. We'll be happy to oblige. 
Got plenty of them. I just, I gotta start writing more of these down. I've got the email saved though. So look out. I'm still. Subscribe, download, rate, review, tell your friends, suggest guests. And uh, you got anything else? Uh, maybe if you have a playlist, you know. The Bible, Bible study, study playlist. Bible study playlist. Listen to listen to last week's episode and you get clued in on what we're talking about. Ooh, good tease for the evergreen. Week. That, that's, 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 that's evergreen. That's what you say, evergreen content in the business. Evergreen content. All right, buddy, have a good week. Appreciate you, Noah. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.